And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Culture Calculus. As always, I'm joined by Jason Jones, Sacramento Kings beat writer for The Athletic. And we are more than thrilled to welcome the king of NBA Twitter to the show, Josiah Johnson. How's it going, man? Thank you for being on. Uh, it's going great, and I, I, don't, I hate being referred to as the King NBA Twitter because it gets all the, the burner and bots and troll accounts mad at me, so I'm just a regular dude. Happy to be on here joining y'all, and it's great to finally connect with y'all. Yeah, I mean, then you get everyone telling you that you're not NBA Twitter, and there's yeah. a second NBA Twitter that's the real NBA Twitter that you're not allowed in because you're too commercial now. It's, uh, it's And I'm trying to figure out, because then I'll get people like, you know, you know, NBA Twitter don't rock with you. And it's like, now everybody who has a face in their account that actually is doing work in the NBA Twitter space rocks with me. It's, it's all these accounts with burner season, Curry this, Harden that, you know, every anytime I see now an account with somebody that has like somebody else as their avi, I'm always just like, I know this, this, this probably won't end well, but it's all gravy. First name, bunch of numbers, don't care what they think. And that's, you know, that that's where it's <laughs> like, you know, NBA Twitter don't rock with you. Like which NBA, the NBA Twitter that shows their faces definitely rocks with me. Well, I do have to ask, man, like, so, you know, you're raising a family, you're writing a series with Ava DuVernay, like there's, there's so much stuff that's going on. How do you have time to tweet as much as you do? I try to just keep it now centralized. Like I put about 10% of my energy into the Twitter and things going on like that, but just try to stay abreast of what's going on in the world. And I think everything that I've done in my career from working on the sports entertainment side for places like NFL Network, Fox Sports, Showtime, to everything I did, obviously on the entertainment side with Comedy Central and all these places is really Everybody's always like, yo, how, how do we do, how do you do this? How do you do that? It's like, man, it's like 16 years worth of experience from cutting highlights at NFL Network and feeling that grind on Sundays to just producing shows and being on really like time, time, you know, we're time and deadline or, you know, I know you guys know being writers and working on that side, like you're always on deadline. So when I jump on Twitter, I know I'm on a deadline. I got to come in, get in, get my jokes off as quick as possible and get back to everything I'm doing in my real world. In addition to the writing and obviously, like you said, raising, raising two boys and, and, and being a good husband and all that good stuff. And you talk about just that timing and how na- it seems like it's natural because to us, I check the timeline, something happens in the game. I know in the timeline, if it's good, it's going to come pretty quickly from you. Just is, is that a comedic thing? I mean, how do you, how have you just developed that natural timing to where now a lot of people are probably trying to imitate what you do. They're not good at it, but they try <laughs> <laughs> to be just witty and just as quick. There can only be one. I think, honestly, that's my background working at NFL Network, cutting highlights. You know I mean? I was at NFL Network for the better part of 10 years. And, you, you know, when you're watching the highlights, you got to get that clip off as quickly as possible. And you're always rushing, trying to turn in shot sheets and do all that stuff for all the various studio shows you got going on. So when I see things now, I know it's a mad scramble. To your point, Jason, it's a mad scramble to get the jokes off. So whenever something happens, we see all that, that funny image in the game. It's funny, I actually had David, when he was writing the piece on me, we were watching the Clippers uh, Mavs game. And that Lucas shot came up and I'm looking at him and I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do anything with this if my mind wasn't working fast. And then probably like 20 seconds later, I came up with some dropped it, and that ended up being one of my more successful tweets of the month. And that's just kind of how it flows. I mean, there'll be a lot of times where I'll see stuff and I'm just like, oh, I don't know if I want to do anything with this. I don't know how people are going to respond. But then there's other times where like everybody's watching this moment. We all have a reaction to it. And like you said, we're checking the timeline 
as quickly as possible to see, make sure, you know, I think recently it was a guy who looked like uh, Skip Bayless in the Suns jersey, who looked like he was, uh, you know, high on some medicinal or something, whatever it may have <laughs> But, you know, right at that moment, everybody's talking about that. We've all seen it. And it's one of those moments now we're checking the timeline just to make sure, like, was I the only one who saw that? The other people too. So really, and that really saved me now with social, like you said, there's a lot of people that are trying to now emulate the style. So it becomes difficult because I have, you know, obviously my go-tos, I, I compare it to a lot to be like being a DJ, right? You know, you're a DJ at the club, you got your songs that are your go-to. So I got some of my memes or whatever it may be that are my go-tos, but now every, everybody else is using those too. So I got to be quick on the draw because if I don't get it out first, then it's like, oh man, you stealing or you're doing whatever. And it's like, now nah, I've used this thing a bunch of times. Like this is literally my generation, my demo. This is what we rock with. But all good, it is what it is. And I just love the thrill of, you know, being in the moment with everybody watching things. And, you know, when we were younger, we didn't have, you know, social media as an outlet. We would see things and have to wait till school started, you know, the next day or, the, you know, on the following Monday to talk about whatever we saw and have to remember it. We're now right in that moment, you know, things happen. You got to just be quick on the draw with it. All I got from that was that the key to making Skip Bayless bearable might be just feeding him some medicinals. Hey, well, <laughs> I don't even know if that's enough to be real, but... <laughs> So this is a question, uh, particularly for my editor, Ka, uh, Khalid Salam. Uh, what was it like being on, on the set of A Different World? Like, talk to me about that. That, and I don't know, I was talking to David about that when we did the interview. And when I look back and really just look at my world, it's like, you know, being on the set, obviously my dad, Marcus Johnson, he played with the Clippers. He played with Norm Nixon, who was married to Debbie Allen. So it was really like, that was kind of like a normal thing, which is really <laughs> weird to say. But me, me and her children grew up, we were good friends with each other. We used to get picked up at school and ushered off to the, you know, the, the studio. When they Chilling would be, with Debbie, totally normal thing to say. You know, on taping nights. And we're like, you know, I'm like a nine, 10 year old walking around the set, you know, like a deer in headlights, don't know all these things going on. Kadeem Hardison, Jasmine Guy, all these amazing people, Glenn Thurman, all these amazing legendary actors, Jada Pinkett. I remember seeing Jada, a young Jada, and just being so enamored by her, like just the... Like, I remember a particular episode, she had her, she was wearing overalls, but she had like the overalls and like this funky thing, but mm -hmm. it just looked so cool. And I remember for like a week after that, trying to make my overalls look like hers and just all that type of stuff. But to see Debbie and know, you know, a black woman running that show and then later on in life, kind of researching the history of the show and knowing how it started. Then she came on, I believe, seasons two through five or whatever it may have been and really kind of changed the direction, really make it more, more feel like an HBCU, but just the success of that show. And that's the thing I think. A lot, of, a lot of people that look like us now have kind of had difficulty with, we don't get those real just great shows anymore that, you know, we're just about regular things. There was no trauma. It was literally just regular life. What's life like on a college campus? What's life like, you know, when you got to move from West Philadelphia to Bel Air and kind of now live in this world that's not familiar to you, but just things that weren't, you know, it wasn't like slaves and all that other type of stuff that now we got to, you know, it feels like nowadays you got to make a movie. It's got to be like a slave with AIDS that overcomes whatever, you know what I mean, to, to, to get on the air. But Seeing Debbie and just the way, like the voice of God, you know, she'd be in the control room, so you wouldn't really interact with her a lot on, on taping nights. But just to, to hear her be the voice of God calling out, you know, directions and talking to the actors and, and everything like that, which truly had such a profound impact on my life. And I think one of the major reasons that I decided to get into the entertainment industry. I want to ask you about that. And we should give a shout out to our colleague, David Ubbin, who wrote this great profile on Josiah. Everyone should go read it at The Athletic. You know, being around someone like Debbie Allen, you've talked a lot, you've talked, you talked to David about this, you've talked a lot recently about the importance of having black content creators and black showrunners and things like that. How much did your experience on a set like A Different World and, and going around to, you know, your dad was, was in a couple of movies as well. How much did that influence, you know, your idea and your goal for having more black content creators out there? I think just for me, you know, when you look around the landscape and especially just from a content standpoint, there's a lot of people at the top who obviously don't look like us that are in control of, of a lot of these different networks and companies and brands. 
and it seems to me that they, they make a lot of money off of our culture, but don't really get it back in, in that, that way where they're giving the opportunities to people who, who deserve it. And that's kind of just been a thing that's big for me in using my reach and using my brand where it's like whoever reaches out to me, anybody who needs some help, needs some advice, some motivation, whatever. I just feel like there's so much negativity and hate in the world. If I can try and balance that out with just being a resource and an outlet and showing people like, look, this stuff is possible. You really just got to work hard and believe in yourself and obviously do the things that are necessary to get where you need to get to. But I think seeing that world where somebody like Debbie Allen, a black woman, obviously is, is literally running things and, and she's in charge, she's in control, she's giving out the direction. Everybody's literally catering to her. It's like, yo, I want to see more of that because I think, you know, when you look at, I believe there was an article that came out recently that basically was like dollar for dollar black projects outperform white projects in terms of budget, in terms of marketing, in terms of all that good stuff. And you look at a thing like black Twitter, like black Twitter can literally make or break a project just based on, you know, how, how we feel, how the wind blows. Like we might see something, we love it, we rock with it. And that thing will explode. It has such a profound influence. And this stuff's been going on forever, especially in America. When you think about Elvis and just how he was able to, mm -hmm. to get Chuck to where Barry. he was, just, you know what I mean? But just like, oh, you know, you think about stuff nowadays where you got these whole TikTok war now where the black creators are basically saying we're not going to make content anymore because, you know, people that don't look like us are taking our taking our stuff and getting paid thousands and thousands of dollars to do it. It just becomes a point where we really need to level the playing field and balance things out and just give ourselves an opportunity. I'm, you know, I, I see a lot of talented black people that I've been able to work with that have put me on and always been resources. So I just want to pay it forward and try to help out people as much as I can while I'm here and I can do it. When you talk about just being creative, I think creativity comes from all different avenues and angles. And to me in sport, you got to have a unique sense of humor to be one of those end of the bench guys, you know, a guy who's not in the rotation they can still be engaged just where did you when you're at the in, at ucla you know obviously your you know, brother was there your dad played there but you're not having the same career they had so how did that your mind begin to work in some some of those later years at ucla in those games where maybe you're seeing things making jokes just to kind of keep keep yourself and the guys into it. i don't think people appreciate just how vital that can be to a team when a guy like that can still keep everybody engaged you know, I like to joke, like you talk about a team like the Lakers, right, with Jared Dudley in the bubble. Jared Dudley's got to be the guy that got to play Madden with LeBron. He might have to lose the game every once in a while to get LeBron's confidence up for all the other stuff he's doing. So, I, you know, my dad was a national champion at UCLA, college player of the year. My, my brother was a national champion at UCLA. I want to say finished like top 20 in scoring there. And then I got there and it's like, you know, I just realized that I wasn't going to have the career that they had. I'm, I was playing with guys like Matt Barnes and Earl Watson and Dan Gadzarich and I looked at Dan's body and I looked at my body and I'm just like, I my body's never going to look like his body. And it, it just became a thing where self-awareness self is a virtue. It is, but like <laughs> these, these guys are probably going to the NBA. I'm going to have to figure something else out. But while I'm here, you know, I think I was like a two or three time academic achievement award winner for the squad, just for the highest GPA and would help, you know, do whatever was necessary to get guys prepared and really help them focus on the academic side too. Cause as you guys know, in college, if you know, if you don't, if you're not eligible, then it don't matter. You can't play no matter how good you are. So really just kind of being a bastion and a resource for them, but keeping the mood like, you know, when you're in a locker room with 15 guys, it's, it's, it's super competitive. Everybody's going at each other, but you're also brothers and you create a familyhood and you bond and you, and you joke about things. And, you know, you got to go through the dog days in the beginning of the season with training camp and, you know, three hour, four hour practices waiting for the season to start. And then you kind of get that glory. But for me, sitting on the end of the bench, we had to find ways to entertain our stuff. We're watching these games for two and a half hours, and we're talking about life. We're talking about all types of stuff, having these deep combos. We used to do this thing, like in Goodfellas, we would cover our mouths with our hands because we knew the camera would be on us. And, you know, we'd have these conversations <laughs> with each other where, we could, you know, if people couldn't see what we were talking about. You never wanted to get busted out or exposed like that. But it's also, I mean, you know, it can be very tough, especially, you know, I think being just the, 
the, the element of depression in it, right? Not playing, not living up. Obviously, my dad's jersey's hanging in, in Poly Pavilion, and I'm sitting on the end of the bench, not getting into games. So to battle that that you know depression and kind of that negativity, you just you just joke about it, and you find humor, and I feel like that's what we do in the black community. We use those type of things as a coping mechanism. Like you know, we'll make a joke at the most inopportune time, but just to really kind of lighten the mood of whatever's going on in the world because we've dealt with so much. So being on that bench, kind of depressed, but using humor and laughter and satire as a way just to, to help the, pass the time and then help just keep my mind focused on, you know, the bigger things that were ahead. Jason, how hard was it for you to ask that question and say UCLA with a straight face that many times? Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> we, why, I don't, why, we don't, I don't hate UCLA, so that helps. You know, one of my best friends graduated from UCLA. Mm-hmm. I got into UCLA. I just didn't want to stay in LA for college. Fair enough. I don't really hate UCLA. I mean, they, they're kind of like our little brother, you know, you know, baby blue versus navy blue. We're golden bears. They're Bruins, you know. Oh, you were, oh I didn't, wait, oh, I thought you this was a SC guy. I didn't, I, didn't real, I didn't realize you oh, was no, a no, 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 no. You know I'm a Cal. I didn't, no, I'm not, I didn't realize, oh, uh, no, no, we, you know, that's not no, even. We're not even going to go into SC, you know. We took y'all swag and ran with it. We really elevated it. You know, y'all, y'all are the big bro, the big bro you see. But, you know, we came through and just, you know, like Snoop did and just crushed the building. So, yeah, I mean, you know, y'all want to build a salary cap. You know, we couldn't, you know, we're kind of a small market team right now. We're working our way back. You know, we we have our little good stretches. You know, our best basketball years happen to be when y'all were good, too, in Arizona and Oregon. And yeah, that's squad, though. I don't want to discuss basketball right now. <laughs> I love that campus though, and it's always funny to me listening like when we play young football and listening to the fight songs and listening to basically how you know it's just it's just I feel like ours is a knockoff of your joint. And it, is. It, it is. It's hilarious to listen to because it's like, damn, this is the best they could do. They're just like, yeah, change a couple notes, and we're gonna rock with it. <laughs> so one of the things that I loved in David's piece was going through kind of your approach to not just basketball, but to sports, this idea that like sports are not loyal to players. Teams are not loyal to players. And, and, you know, you talked about rooting now for players instead of teams, which I think a lot of people can relate to a lot of people, especially basketball fans root for players instead of teams. You know, what was it like the stuff that you saw your dad endure, especially under, you know, fucking Donald Sterling. Um, you know, how do you... We can curse? Oh, we can Yeah, we can I don't know how to say shit, but okay, now I can really lighten up. Yeah, fucking has to go in front of Donald Sterling. I don't know any other way to say his name, honestly. But that's that's the thing that really is like, you know, when I see people like, oh man, you a dick writer, how you just gonna be a fan of LeBron? It's like, do you guys realize, and I think I told David this story, I had a younger brother who passed away in a drowning accident. And, you know, just seeing the impact that had on my dad, my dad had to, obviously he saw, he's the one who grabbed him and tried to bring him back and it obviously didn't work out. But I remember days after that, Donald Sterling called in the house and just ripping him a new asshole because my dad had broke his neck and they were trying to make him have this controversial surgery that could have led to paralysis. And literally, you know, you know, your son, your son just passed away. You're not calling to offer condolences. You're calling mm-hmm. the shit on a human being. And also just being around Elgin Baylor, man, when he was the GM of the squad, as a kid, just seeing this this proud man that had this great NBA career that I didn't really know about as a youth. So I got older and started just watching videos and seeing just how amazing of a human being he was and seeing Elgin just, just walking around being basically, you know, kind of just paraded around like, look, this is my black face, but knowing that, you know, when it was time to sign players or whatever it may be, you know, Donald Sterling just constantly shat all over him. That really put, you know, I get all these kids now that they're like, oh man, you became a Lakers fan, whatever. I'm like, no, I'm a LeBron fan. So wherever LeBron goes, I'm rocking with it. That's the Cavs. I'm not a Cleveland Cavs fan, but if LeBron's playing on the Cavs, well, shit, I want the Cavs to win because LeBron's playing on it. If he goes to the Heat, same thing. He goes back to the Cavs, same thing. He goes to the Lakers. For me, it, was, it wasn't a hard, hard move. Like, I feel like I had Stockholm Syndrome being a Clippers fan. Obviously, Steve mm-hmm. Ballmer came in. He's done a lot of great shit. 
but Shelly Sterling is still attached to that team. I want to say she still gets tickets and VIP parking pass and all other shit. So it's like you didn't make a clean break with that situation yet. Yeah, really, Donald Sterling said some some fuck shit and then got two billion dollars. Like you know. that's my whole thing about this is that you like he got paid for being racist. Like he made two billion dollars off this shit. Yeah. If you really go back and look at team valuations now, team valuations have skyrocketed mm-hmm. because, because of, of a that racist ass owner who said some fuck shit got caught up by you know the the chick he his side boo. And now the Clippers went from being a team that was worth with like seven, eight hundred million to a team that got sold for two billion dollars. Right. You know, that's yeah. and being from LA, you know, us being LA guys, we knew for decades what a piece of shit Donald Sterling was. And there was a reason why a lot of us weren't Clipper fans. Yeah. And, and, I, and that's why I respect it was crazy Lakers for me fans. to see people like, what you didn't know. I'm like, you didn't know? We've been new about this guy. And it really made it hard for a lot of us to even root for the Clippers at all, no matter who was on the team. You know, because you knew at the end of the day, oh, Donald's going to do something. It was, it's, it's still, even for me, it's like to watch the Clippers now, it's kind of like, they're still the Clippers. He may not be the owner, but there's always going to be that, that kind of that little shadow of, it's just the Clippers, no matter what they do. And then Twitter makes it even more fun. Like when you look at the Clippers, and look, I got a lot of love for Clippers fans. I know they've been through a lot, but that Clippers curse will not be broken until the stench of Sterling is removed from that franchise. And that includes Shelly. It's like it's funny. I feel like everybody tried to give Shelly a pass now. Like I listened to the the pod they did and tried to paint Shelly as kind of a victim in this situation. Shelly Shelly didn't see shit because she was doing shit too. She was she was right in the mix with all that. You know, I mean, you talk about all the properties you got in L.A. They were both slumlords. Like, let's just be real there, right? Like, oh, Donald. Like, we we you know, like she was like she knew about Vistaviano. She wasn't tripping. She wasn't tripping until it became in her best interest to. And for the team to make the sale and try to act like, oh, Sterling's don't own it anymore. No, you pay the motherfucker $2 billion and she still gets all her same access and whatever. You know what I mean? It's, it's not going to go away until that situation happens. I think these are the basketball gods are speaking up. And the, the crazy thing for me is when you really look at, you know, Donald Sterling, the impact he's had on Southern California basketball, you know, really without him, the Lakers aren't what they are. You know, if he wouldn't have gave Jerry Buss that money to be able to buy the squad, but the sad thing is he sees that and he's like, well, shit, if he can win a championship, I can't tell him about the San Diego Clippers. No way. I got to pay for socks and ankle tape and I got to pay for all. Wait, 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 wait. I didn't know how to do all that shit. I got to pay for free agents. Like they're not just, you know, but just to hear, like my dad always tells this story about when he first came back to the Clippers and, uh, you know, Sterling is known for having these white parties uh, where they wear all white, obviously in the Christmas parties. So my dad went to a Christmas party and they had all the players in full uniform, obviously already just, you know, dehumanizing them and just making them, you know, like he's at this party with all these people and he's got to wear his uniform. They got a Santa Claus there and uh, they're like, yo, Marcus, you got to go take a picture sitting on Santa's lap. And my dad's like, fuck, I'm not taking no fucking picture sitting on Santa's lap. What the fuck are you talking about? Then they go back like Mr. Sterling can be very disappointed if you don't take a picture sitting on Santa's lap. So my dad goes and sits on the lap and ends up like palming Santa's head like a basketball, just does some, you know, he figures out how to just kind of do his shit. And I see that same thing even going on now in the world where, you know, black men are always kind of forced to be put in this situation to, to more or less humiliate ourselves to, you know, to be able to sustain and survive and, and keep our bread coming. What's it like having Marcus Johnson as a dad? <laughs> I mean, I mean, just to, I don't know if a lot of men could have dealt with that, those type of situations the way your dad did. And even I think back to about five, six years ago, the Bucks were in Sacramento for a game and the, t- the Kings decided to uh, <laughs> hand out shirts with monkeys on them for uh, Chinese New Year. And DeMarcus Cousins was like, you can't, you're not giving out monkey shirts in black during Black History Month. Yeah. A lot of people killed DeMarcus for that. But your dad tweeted, thank you, DeMarcus. You know, mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, Marcus Johnson's always been outspoken. He's always been a man's man. What was it like growing up 
with that as your dad. That's funny when you tell that story. He was actually there for that game. And I think yeah. talked to the Marks before the game. And he was like, you know, you know, you see all these damn, you know, monkey shirts going on. This is no disrespect to Chinese culture, but it's Black History Month, right? You know, you can't be here. I know it was the year of the monkey. It was bad timing. But that's something from a PR standpoint. Like, yeah, we might have to push this a little bit, you know, just like this in March or get this in January. We can't be doing this shit right now. But for me, it was always wild because, again, it's like it was like when I said, like being on a different world, it was just it was a normal situation for me. This was just my dad. This was kind of normal. But as I got older, I started to realize just the impact that he had on the, the community and the basketball world. Yes. And pretty much anybody you see that was born in the late 70s, early 80s, like I've got several friends that are Marcus that spell it exactly <laughs> like him. And it's like, yeah, man, I was named after your dad. You think about Marcus Tuiasosopo. My dad went to school with his dad and name and just the profound effect he had. And, you know, I only got to see him later on in his career when he was pretty much washed, right, after he had his neck injury. Like, he, he broke his neck, I want to say, when I was like three or four years old. I remember actually being at that game against the Mavs. He ran into Benoit Benjamin's stomach and kind of just, you know, freak accident. But saw the long road back and him being able to come back. He finished his NBA career with the Golden State Warriors. He was there for like eight games playing with Don Nelson, who was his coach in Milwaukee. And then we ended up moving to Italy for a little bit. And that's kind of where we finally just decided it was time to move on and hang him up. But for most of my career, my dad was washed. So when we play one-on-one and shit, I, you know, when I'm starting to have like 14, 15, I'm giving him buckets. I'm taking advantage of his janky hip. You know, he's got the, the, the janky neck issues, all that type of stuff. So I'm just looking <laughs> like, you were an NBA dog. But then as I go back, and he had a bunch of um, VHS videos and beta videos. Uh, his parents were great about saving all this stuff. But I started going back and watching him give buckets to Bernard King, watching him give buckets to Dr. J, watching him uh, just block Kareem shit, you know, with, with his – my dad had like a 40-plus vert. And I'm seeing all these highlights and clips. And I'm like, okay, well, shit, maybe, you know, maybe I can rock with you. But, you know, he's been making a push now. He's been a Hall of Fame finalist for the past few years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've we really been making a strong, strong push to help just get him over the top. Because when you look at his career and really help push it forward, he's not the first point forward, obviously, that the, the NBA has ever seen. But he coined that term. And really now when you look at guys like LeBron and other people who really, Scottie Pippen, who have taken that position and now ran with it, you know, it's, it's amazing to see that my dad was kind of one of the forefathers of this unique hybrid position now that, that that's, that's pretty spectacular in the league. When you talk about, you know, seeing how the, the treatment that your dad endured and other players and, and the dehumanization that, you know, these black men have, have always gone through, especially in sports, is, is part of what you do when you tweet something funny with a player? Like, do you think that serves to further humanize these guys to us? I mean, when I first started, and I think that's the thing I've learned about the internet, the internet could be a really terrible, mean, bitter place for a lot of people. And I think some of my initial stuff was kind of not, not, not as respectful, was kind of on the other side, where now I try to make these guys you know, laugh at the joke. It's one of the things where like, I know after a game, if I make a Trey Young joke, it's going to be in a positive light, whoever I'm talking about, Ben Simmons, whatever it may be. Now, always deal with news and whatever's going on in the space, but try and do it in a way where it's not mean spirited. Try to do it in a way where if I make a Trey joke, I know I'm friends with Trey's dad, that Trey's dad is going to send it to him. You know, these guys are going to be in the locker room passing the stuff around and laughing about it. And more of that locker room feel. When you're in the locker room with guys, it's playful banter. We may be going at each other. It's like playing the dozens, right? You know, in the black community, we may be going at each other, but it's all love and you know, it's nothing personal. You know, it's just like, yo, sometimes I'm going to get roasted. And I've been on the other side of that. So I definitely, the thing about me and what I do with my account is like, look, you know that when the tweet is coming from that King Josiah 54 account, it's coming from Josiah Johnson. I don't have a team. I don't have nobody that works for me. I don't have nobody that does any really stuff on that side. I have a couple of graphics guys occasionally if I need some higher concept stuff that I really want to get out that I'll reach out to because I, I edit I, my editing is terrible and all that shit. Like I'm very just like, you know, I could come with the captions and all that and kind of the simple clips from from stuff from my generation. But I always try now, especially with this culture now, that's really kind of what these 
burners and troll accounts. And it's like, I feel like a lot of people got inspired by Kevin Durant, but what they're missing is that Kevin Durant's like a super successful high level NBA basketball player who just wanted to be a part of the conversation, right? He mm-hmm. just wanted to be able to, to converse with people and be in on the jokes and talk about the stuff without it having to be like, Oh, it's Kevin Durant. Like, you know, so that's one angle of being a burner. Now it's a lot of kids that it's like, bro, you have no reason. Like nobody gives a shit who you are. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Read the shit from your regular kind of put your name on it. If you really feel that way. And you're wearing a mask when no one knows your face. Like, yeah, it's like you're wearing a mask, like you're important. You're not losing any bags over this shit. And that's like, you know, they'll definitely try to put you in a position now where they talk crazy and say the most outlandish wild shit. And always from my standpoint, it's like, look, the internet is not really hard to understand. Like if I want to find you guys and locate you, you're going to say the wrong shit to somebody and end up getting your ass whooped. And it's not, you know what I mean? And you always, you've seen that enough in life now where you get these trolls and then the people pull up on them in real life. And it's like, oh man, I was just kidding. I was, it's like, ain't no fucking just kidding, bro. Like this is real life shit. You fucking up people's money. You're talking about their family, their appearance and shit. That's the type of stuff that literally like nobody, you know, I don't go out trying to start wars and battles with people. I just try to keep the mood light and get some jokes out. But that's the stuff for me. I always keep that in mind now with these guys. Like these guys have families, these guys have kids. So whatever the joke's going to be, you know, I may, I may go at a team or whatever. Maybe, you know, Trey goes into Madison Square Garden and busts the Knicks ass. There's going to be some jokes, you know, that are Knicks centric. I'm not calling out any individual players. I'm not trying to insult. You deserve them. it. It's fine. But <laughs> and by the same token, if the Knicks go out and bust Trey's ass, there's going to be some, you know, some Trey jokes, some Atlanta jokes, whatever it may be. So it's kind of the yin and yang of just the Twitter space and NBA Twitter. And that's kind of how these jokes thrive. It's more or less, I'm reactionary. I'm not trying to be mean spirited or bitter. I'm just like, look, what's, what's the joke? What's funny? What do we all just watch on that TV that I can now have a, a you know, a topical pop culture reference that could bring back some nostalgia from a moment that we all know. Because you played the game because of your family and all, you think that the players take your jokes a little, a lot more lighthearted than they would somebody else. Like say me just coming out off the top rope with some crazy shit about them where they'd be like, hold up, who the hell you think you are? But when it's you, maybe it's a little bit different. Well, I tried it with the tone of it, all the jokes. It's always just kind of more funny stuff. You know what I mean? It's, it's never, like I said, I'm never going to talk about a dude's appearance or talk about his family. Like, everything I'm doing is from a space of respect, ultimately. And like I said, it's more like banner. It's more like playing the dozen. So I've never really had any real issue with it. It's funny now because a lot of these guys follow me, LeBron, Steph, KD. So I really had to now, like, take, you know, think twice about tweeting some shit. And normally I might just tweet a joke or whatever. I'm like, damn, Steph going to see this. And he, he might not rock with it. So I got to just be respectful of him and his family because I've been on the other side of it, like I said, and I've seen kind of the nastiness that social provides. So I just want to be a bastion of here's some comedy, here's some humor, some stuff we can all get down with and laugh about that we all just witnessed. The normie version of that is when your dad follows you on Twitter and you realize you got to censor some shit. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> like, I can't, I can't, like, you know, I can't have dad being like, yo, what the fuck, why you just said it? You, you know, my dad works for the Bucks, so like, I can't make <laughs> many Bucks jokes. I'm just like, you know, you can't, you know, so I got to be very tempered in how I approach things. Like, you know, even with Yana stuff, I've had some stuff that I had to just keep in the drafts. You know, <laughs> this stuff Because I'm not going to have my dad, like, when my dad, my dad used to broadcast UCLA games when I was there. And, you know, if he ever said anything about a player on the team, they would always come to me like, man, why are your dad talking shit about me? I was like, I don't have nothing to do with what he's doing. Yeah, just, I'm just wondering with the, how prolific you are with getting the tweets off. Have you ever had to deal with people who you say, hold up now, I mean, you know, you just took my tweet, took my content and put your name on it like it was your own. Like, how often do you run across that? How often do you get Addison Raid? Um, I mean, this is... This is the thing I think a lot of, and that's what, what, what kind of my, my thing with a lot of black creatives is they don't realize is like, you know, people that you got producers at networks, whatever it may be that are, that are scouring, that follow these accounts. You may not know who they are, but they know who you are. And when you put up some hot shit, they're taking that now and making a significant amount of money off of it. Like I didn't realize 
until I became whatever you want to call me, influencer, whatever that I hate, I hate using that word, but started to see the money that companies and corporations throw at people to get engagement, obviously to get their brands promoted. And for me, I know when I have a viral tweet, much like a lot of people, that that tweet's going to end up on 25 to 50 different IG accounts. It's going to end up on a bunch of Twitter accounts. It's funny when I tweet some, I'll sometimes just, just check the, the thing is like the sneaky shit now people do is like, if I tweet something, they'll change a word or two in it. So you can't really search for it. But then I'll just see the shit pop up on an IG account or whatever. And I'm like, yo, I know for a fact because you tweeted this 45 minutes after I did with the same exact clip that you took this shit from me. So it's my, my thing is always just, just courtesy. It's not, it's not a difficult thing to do. I mean, you look at accounts like, I mean, for me, it became very problematic. I had this great tweet after Drake dropped, dropped the Laugh Now, Cry Later video where he basically looked like Fred Van Fleet, like down the <laughs> road, you know, when you took mm-hmm. the picture. Yeah. So I remember watching the video, I tweeted that thing out, then, you know, some big IG accounts took it, but then those IG accounts will sell for like $80, $100 million. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a thing like, you really just took food off my table. Now it becomes more like, you're not just taking the joke, like you're taking bread away from me. Well, and call it what it is. It's, it's plagiarism. Yeah. And you guys are both journalists, obviously the high level. You know, like when you're reading some shit and somebody blatantly just ripped or jacked or whatever, or you write a great article and next thing you know, it's funny. You take like, that I, shit personally. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. I was doing some stuff with Yahoo Sports. I got a show on, on Waves TV now too. And I remember, uh, you know, when the bubble first started, I had a good friend of mine, Matt Barnes, who's my teammate at UCLA. And I remember breaking some news, kind of, we interviewed him. He was like, yeah, man, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of dudes don't even really want to go. And I'm like, who? You know, a bunch of Lakers and Clippers. He didn't name names, but I'm like, okay, I'm talking to my producer, like, yo, this shit's about to hit like this is we got to get this clip out right now like i haven't heard that news anywhere but then i dropped that news and next thing i know next day matt's on this show or he's on that show and they get him to basically say the same shit that i had already reported and dropped but that's how you know like this game is just super janky and that's why like we as we as a community and believe me there's sometimes when it's accidental it's coincidental it's not deliberate it's not on purpose and that's the thing i got a lot of people that that tweet in the same space to me sometimes we'll run the same exact clip one of my good friends matthew cherry we really bonded during uh game of thrones season eight where we both ran the same uh cleo from set it off meme literally at the same exact point and it's like okay we know neither one of us took this shit from each other we know we just were both thinking this shit and that's like i, I rock with cherry now more than anybody so i'm like bro you're brilliant like the fact that that's the thing that came to your mind when when this when this thing happened in the show so a lot of times, you know, it could be coincidental, accidental, it's not deliberate, but generally, you know, when it's like, damn, this is like blatant theft. And that's where it becomes problematic. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You did a you did a Yahoo show a few years back with Martellus Bennett, who yeah. um, I love Martellus. He's such an interesting guy. I got to meet him at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. But like you, like the stuff that you've said about no team or sport being loyal to players, you know, he's very upfront about the fact that for him, football was just a job. It wasn't a passion. It wasn't a thing that defined him. It was a job. Does it ever feel like 
when you're watching a game and you know you've, you've probably got a tweet at some point, does it feel like work? Is it pleasure? Is there some kind of mix of both or, you know? Well, well first off, Martellus Bennett and Michael Bennett are probably two of my favorite human beings working on the show <laughs> Martellus, but just because he, he literally, you just meet the guy and it's like, this dude literally gets it. Like he wants mm-hmm. to be an artist. He wants, he's writing, he's doing animated stuff. He's, he's just a creative human being who was never like, I'm not just some big meathead that you know but now when i get on i bought floor, 10 copies of, of dear black boy and i gave yeah. it to every every little black baby i know but i've got two for my kids but you know mm-hmm. when i was actually with him working on that show i think right right around when that came out but just say yeah i'm writing this book i've got this animated project i'm doing all the stuff with my daughter and for me just being able to be around martellus was a was an awesome amazing experience but i forgot even what your question was i'm sorry i'm just rambling. <laughs> no, no, i mean <laughs> I, it's basically like i mean i think that a lot of us who work in the industry can kind of relate to the idea that like sometimes it's work like yeah. I, I you know none of us get into this if we didn't love sports but like on the day-to-day grind sometimes i'm watching a game and i'm like man this is work right yeah. when you're watching a game especially since you're you're working during a game you're tweeting during a game does it does it always feel like work does it does it always feel like pleasure? Is there a mix of both? Like, does it does it get exhausting at some point? I think the thing about so social is like a drug, right? It's, it's a drug that's more powerful than cocaine, I like to say. So, you know, you sometimes will go to the well too much. And, you know, social media is also very fickle. So people can turn on you in a, in a heartbeat, right? We've seen it recently where, you know, it seems like in the past week or so, it's just been like a straight mm. just cancel fest. Like anybody says anything or, you know, we're pulling up old tweets. And sometimes those old tweets obviously are warranted. But I remember like people were trying to fucking pack me up over some pro Obama tweets because they didn't get the sentiment or what. I'm just like, you literally, and it's like, you guys are this desperate because they wanted to clump me in with other shit. And it's like, you get these little kids who are like, ooh, you said this 18 years ago. Like, you you know, you must still feel the same way. It's like, no, nah, like this is literally like a pro Obama tweet, dog. I don't really know if you, you grasp that, like where, what the sentiment of it was. But it's just such a fucked up world now where, you know, nowadays, like, it's like I get the LeBron cosign, I get an article in The Athletic, and I didn't ask LeBron to cosign me. I'm literally minding my business. I was literally watching the Nets game. I was actually on the toilet if I could be candid with you guys. <laughs> my wife's relaying to me what happened in the game. I'd ate a, I'd ate a pastrami sandwich with too many peppers on it. And my, you know, <laughs> Man, you, you know, you, some, someone like you, you should have the TV in the bathroom like the old ESPN zone did. I'm literally door open in the bathroom trying to listen to what's going on. She's like, yeah, Bruce Brown, he took a bad shot. So I'm like, I fired a tweet off. The next thing I know, obviously, That's a good I, wife. I do everything I'm doing. I walk out, I'm looking at my, my mentions. And I'm like, oh, this ain't the real LeBron. And I'm like, oh shit, this is LeBron. And then me and him have like a little back and forth. But I knew at that moment, I even told her like, I know that this is going to piss a lot of people off. You, you look at somebody like LeBron, somebody like Beyonce, even somebody like Jesus Christ, who they literally murdered for trying to be the son of God. I mean, at the end of the day, like hate just permeates this. You know, you look at the nicest people in the world, they get hate. You look at like Dr. Fauci, whoever it may be, people that are just trying to save lives and like <laughs> tell people to do the right thing. It's like, I hate you. I hope you die. You know what I mean? It's like the most fucked up shit, but it's just a, it's just a, it's just a crazy world on that side. So I don't, I don't try and go too deep into it now. I'll never watch a game now. Like, you know, I'm, I know that people that work at, you know, social media companies, they have to watch these games and constantly like, oh, we've got to get X amount of impressions or engagements or whatever off of this game. I never go in like that because I find when I do, then I start forcing it. Then I start putting out whack shit. Then I start putting out, you know, stuff that I'm not even like, oh, that's not that, that that hot, but I'm just kind of now just shooting. It's funny when I had David with me watching the game, I kind of had a little pressure. Like, yo, he's sitting here, you know, writing an article on The Athletic. I got to have something hot come out. And literally the, the one that ended up being the hottest, I was sitting with him and I'm sure he had the recorder on or whatever. And I was like, I don't even know if I want to, I know I'm like, everybody's probably going to do something for this shit. I don't know if I have a great take on it. Then I'm like, oh wait, I got some, just dropped it, not expecting anything. And then that thing ends up going viral and kind of, you know, winning the day. So I try not to approach it with any, anything going in, just, you know, 
whatever the flow of the game is, whatever happens. But when that moment happens, it's like, all right, now we got to jump and, and do it. And sometimes you get a lot of those. It's been kind of tough with the Bucks and the Suns. No offense about those franchises, but you know, I'm a Lakers LeBron fan. If we would have got a Lakers Nets finals, I feel like I'd be working overtime in OD and probably would have had to staff up for this moment because there'd be so much great shit coming out. Obviously the Suns and Bucks, two great franchises, not as much content. So now, you know, there's been points I didn't watch these games just as a fan. I was actually a game three with my dad back in Milwaukee. So, you know, I didn't tweet much from that game because I was out there getting lit off the, the free alcohol and, and all you can eat shrimp they had in the, uh, the jockey club they had there. But yeah, it just depends. I never go in like, oh, I got to do all this and that. I just kind of go in like, yo, if something happens and I got to take on it, then I'll drop it. If not, I'm just going to watch this game and enjoy it. Yeah, and you've got some, I mean, outside of the, the fun space, you've got some some serious stuff coming up. This Kaepernick project you're working on is a big deal, I think. And can you just tell us a little about what, whatever you can share at this point? I know it's not <laughs> out yet, but just kind of just the what it's like to be working on a project like this with someone like Kaepernick. We, we talk about black creatives, black voices, and his voice was literally silenced. You, you know, and then you saw how his words were twisted and misconstrued and it became what well, his protest became about something completely different, you know, before the end of the season. Just what's it like to be able to get into this space and use kind of that, that part of your creativity to work on something like this? You know, when you talk about Colin in black and white, which uh, I don't know when it's supposed to be released. And obviously I can't get y'all too much because I don't want Ava, Ava coming at me like, oh, I, I heard you on the pod uh, dropping all kind of dimes. But you know, I would just project. like to say that we started this pod talking about Debbie Allen, talking about you being on the set with Debbie Allen, and we're we're wrapping it up with with you dropping Ava on a first name basis. So, <laughs> Ava, but but you talk about people that give back. Ava's company, Array, and everything they're doing in the industry to now try and get jobs for people who've been marginalized, people who haven't really been given opportunities. You know, working at her production office, we were working there. Then we ended up. This is right before COVID started. Then you know, we were still in the writers' room for the show when all that happened, but just being around and just seeing her staff and seeing the opportunities she gives and just her walking in the room with her, 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 her like coffee beverage, you know, to come talk with us and hang out with us and just, you know, her being, I think it was, it was amazing. She's, she really helped elevate me to a level that I didn't think I could reach in my career. And also working with Michael Starberry, who co-created Legend of Chamberlain Heights with me, who was a showrunner on that project. Starberry for my money is the best writer in the game. He worked on When They See Us with Ava, they were nominated for an Emmy on that project then they were gracious enough to let me come and work. But I remember we had Colin come in and this was right around the time that he, you know, is when I want to say it was like 2019 is when we started working on it. Uh, like, like November, 2019 is this was, you know, he came in, he was supposed to come for a few days and kind of just help us, you know, really craft the story and give us as much insight as possible. And this was literally the week that he found out he had to work out in Atlanta. And I remember just sitting with Colin. Colin's a man I got a tremendous amount of respect for. He's a human being that's doing so much great for the world. And I just look Colin in his eye. I'm like, look, Colin, I've heard from fucking all these burner accounts and everybody else in the world on the internet that you don't want to play football or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do you even really want to play? He just gave me this look like, my friend, don't ever ask me no dumb shit like that. Of course, I mean, I love football. I'm still working out five times a week. I'm still grinding. So to see, for me, it's tough because I've worked for the NFL Network and I've worked in a lot of these spaces. So to see the way that he was basically, you know, brutalized and more or less criminalized for trying to raise awareness about all the shit, you know, 2016 when he did it. And now fast forward to 2020, 2021, you know, we, we talk about Jacob Blake and George Floyd and all these situations. And this man literally was deprived of his career where they could say whatever he wanted. Oh, he wasn't this. He wasn't that. Like, I literally want to say his last season, he had had like near shoulder surgery and he wasn't the same Colin Kaepernick. He just needed time to recover. But you talk about Chip Kelly, or I believe was his coach at the time of the 49ers. And, you know, was he a distraction with you? This he was that. Like, no, Colin's a great dude. The guys in the locker room love him. The only distraction is you guys always coming here 
because as you guys know in the media, you know, when we get a story we want to gravitate on, I think of a guy like LeVar Ball, who LeVar, you know, has his flaws, but the media would love to elevate LeVar initially when it, it meant clicks and, and views and page views and all that type of shit. And now the same media is like, oh, we should cancel him. You know, I see Stephen A. Smith make his Otani and his Nigeria comments, right? So that gets a ton of views and then oh, we're bringing the guy to, to cancel Stephen A. Smith, but now he's right back on the shows doing whatever. So it's basically like the media loves to try to play both sides of the situation whenever they feel like they can get some value out of it. But just to be able to sit with Colin, see him to be able to tell a story, I feel like people are going to be, you know, Colin in black and white on Netflix when it comes out. It's, it's a unique story. Uh, Michael Starberry and the rest of the writing team, we had a, a great crew on there that, that just, you know, we grinded out, really worked hard to make sure that we were authentic in the story that we told. I think people are going to watch this and really see another side of Colin. I think everybody kind of knows the basics of it. He was adopted. He grew up, I want to say, in the Milwaukee area, then moved to Turtle California. And what life was like as a black kid living, living with two white parents and, you know, how, you know, people talk about California and everybody thinks like, oh, blue state and super liberal and blah, this and blah, that. Yeah, that's LA, that's, that's San Francisco, that's San Diego. But there's like what I like to call the armpit of California. That's LA until you get to Orange County. What do you mean? <laughs> Jason, you, mean, you know what I'm saying? You got the Orange Counties, you got the, the, the armpit of California that they don't rock that way. They're still super conservative and traditional in how they approach and how they see things. So he's basically living in this double world where it's also like, oh, but you're good at sports, so you're one of the good ones, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of the, the, the label that we could put well, on. you have value. Yeah, you're, you're valuable. I like watching you throw a football and play baseball and play basketball, so we'll deal with you, but, you know. We you're, love you're, you. Go ahead and win us some games. We're still calling you inward under our breath, right, when you throw an interception and you do whatever, still blame you for all that stuff. But just being able to, to work with Colin and, and tell the story, and I haven't been able to see see much of the clips with me and, me and Michael Starberry, who's a big Bucks fan, are good friends. We were actually at Game 3 together. And based on his enthusiasm and excitement with the stuff that he's seen, I'm super excited about it. Because if there's one thing about Starberry, he's always going to give it to you real. And if it was whack, he would be like, yeah, it didn't turn out right. But he's literally like, yo, man, everybody loves it. I'm super excited about it, man. We can't wait for this thing to come out. And just a great opportunity to be able to work with Colin, work with uh, Starberry, and be able to work with Ava DuVernay, who literally UCLA alum like myself, but just a an icon right i never know oh, man so why life. you got to ruin that for me you know I'm like, <laughs> i mean you know we got the hit y'all got a few but y'all not y'all not bringing the heat like we are like you know we got now we gotta have to have a whole separate pot where we go you know line for line name for name see we got we got hitters but ava just a, an amazing human being the stuff and the contribution that she's making to the game but also willing to give back willing to elevate and you know people are like what's it like working with ava ava runs a tight ship like ava don't fuck around you know when you're working with ava you better put your best foot forward because she will let you know if it's not up to par and you know, me, me, she had to let me know at one point, like, yo, your shit ain't really where it needed to be. So I was like, okay, I had to really step back in the booth, get it where it needed to be and gave it to her. And then from there, she's like, okay, I, I see you can do something. Like, you, you know, you really embrace the challenge. But I actually, from the Collins show, got to produce and write another show what they're called Cherish the Day on OWN Network that's now shooting season two with two incredibly amazing talent showrunners in uh, Terry Schaefer and Renell Swilling, who are actually co-EPs on the Colin Project with me as well. So... You know, it's funny, like I've been in the entertainment game for a long time, but all my showrunners have been black. So it's, it's mm. again, like my, my life is kind of weird and unique from that standpoint. <laughs> when people talk about what goes on in TV or whatever, it's like, yo, all my rooms have been predominantly black. I've never really seen the other side. I definitely know all that shit goes on, but I've been fortunate and blessed to be, you know, able to work with people who look like me. Well, so you said earlier to us that, you know, the social media stuff is, is only 10% really of what you do. And clearly, like, you have all of this other amazing work going on in Hollywood and you have for years. Do you, you're, you're probably still, like, mostly known for the social media stuff. Do you ever, do you wish that that would shift kind no, of? I mean, I think the, it's funny. The social media thing really came out of a result of me when I had the show on Comedy Central, Legend of Chamberlain Heights. Started, you know, I realized just the power that social possessed. So I started basically running the show account 
trying to put out as much content, really learned a lot about just the world. And then once that show got canceled, I now focus into my own account. And it's crazy to me because I'll get these kids that'll come talking shit to me like, oh, you just make memes or whatever. It's like, bro, like, I mean, you know, the IRS, the IRS knows what I do. And uh, it, ain't, <laughs> it ain't, making memes is like the, 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 the lowest of the revenue streams, like, you know, all this other stuff going on. But I also, you know, like to be in a position where, I, you know, my brain kind of moves so fast and works so hard that I can do the stuff that on NBA Twitter that's lighthearted and then dive into a project like Con, which is actually obviously serious and definitely stuff tonally that, you know, you got to go to some dark places in your mind to re- be able to really tell the story. But I need that balance in life. So it's weird. Now I'm with my dad in Milwaukee and we're walking around and obviously he gets a ton of love in Milwaukee, but I got people coming up to me like, oh, it's the king of NBA Twitter. I'm just like, bro, I'll just... I'm just a guy that, that tweets jokes like I don't want to be a king of anything or whatever. King Josiah is literally a king in the Bible. I, I mirrored my social name after LeBron because he was King James. I'm like, well, shit, Josiah was a king, too. I could be a king, too, like whatever. <laughs> but it wasn't like I was coming in trying to I hate kind of like I'm a super humble dude. So I hate kind of that stuff where I'm the, you know, I'm not an arrogant guy. I'm walking around like, oh, I'm the king of like I just can't imagine myself. But hey, I'm the king of Twitter. Like that shit just is like it's even funny to say. But I love the I love using the platform. I love giving other people opportunities. I love amplifying talent to people that I see and really just trying to be somebody that the next generation can look at and be like, damn, I want to be like him when I grow up. Like, you know what I mean? So, and, and if they reach out to me, as people know, like anybody reach out to me with questions or motivation, or they want to know what it's like being in a writer's room, whatever, I'm always willing to give them a little bit of my time just to help get them to where, where I think they could be. So, you know, you always got to give back and pay it forward. Right. Well, and lastly, Josiah, and thank you again for joining us. Uh, you know, obviously you're rooting for the Bucks in these finals. You know, give me give me your prediction here. How do you think it's going to go? Uh, you know, when they went down 0-2, it was a little tough. And I remember, you know, we were at game three, and we're kind of like, I'm sitting with Michael Starberry, who's a longtime Bucks fan. He's nervous as shit. He's just like, you know, he don't want to concede defeat. But knowing, like, you know, watching the first quarter, the second quarter, and I'm just telling him and my dad, I'm like, look, the Bucks need to make a run, man, or this shit's going to be over, right? You know, they got the Scott Foster love. They got kind of everything they needed. <laughs> but now they smacked the Suns, obviously, in game three. In game four, we're going to see what happens. But, you know, if they can, you know, if they can tie this thing up, there's a, definitely a possibility that we're going back to game six in Milwaukee and I'm going to get out there, you know, if the Bucks are up 3-2, because I think just being in that city to see them win a championship would be a remarkable thing. But at this point, it's not just going to be a clear cut. Everybody thought, you know, Suns and Four Guy memes really hitting, hitting the TL. <laughs> and now they've calmed that down. So if the Bucks can tie it up tonight, I think there's a good chance that they can win this series. If they tie it up, they're winning in six. I'm going to say it right now. And because they were on the other side of that, I believe a couple of years ago, right when they jumped to a two-zero lead against yeah. the Raptors, whoever yeah, it was, the Raptors. Yeah, if they if if they tie it, they're going to win in six. I don't. I think they're. I think Giannis has figured out. If I get near the rim, they really can't do a thing with me. And if he hits some free throws, you know, what I mean, he's he's gotten used to the. It was funny. I was at Game Three, and uh, you know, Bucks fans, I know, have just been getting it from from everybody whenever Giannis is at the line. But Devin Booker went up to shoot, and the Bucks fans started doing the count. <laughs> and I remember just I was cracking up in my seat, like they're hilarious. But this is the stuff you want to see. And I think Giannis, obviously, if he can get that Finals MVP, he's now cementing himself as an elite upper level guy in the league, and he's in that you know Mount Rushmore of current guys with LeBron, Steph, KD, and Giannis on there. So. And also, but, you know, on the other side, I'm a big fan of the NBA and basketball in general, so it wouldn't be bad to see CP3 and a guy like mm-hmm. Devin Booker, who I played with Earl Watson, who was a coach of the Suns, one of Book's first coaches. And Earl just, you know, always glowingly talks about Book and how hard he works and how, much, how great he wants to be. So I wouldn't be mad seeing that as well. Just make sure Giannis wears those black Air Force Ones again. Exactly. He keeps wearing those, he's going to jack somebody. He got them from Bobby Portis, I hope. They're like, <laughs> they're, 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 they're Bobby Portis' leftover stash. All right. Well, Josiah, thank you so much for joining us, man. We can't wait to see your tweets in the, in the, the rest of this this finals. We can't wait for the Colin documentary. And uh, yeah, man, stay stay good. 
Right, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you guys. Thanks, man. Thank you for joining us on Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating if you can as well. And make sure to tune in every Thursday. We'll have a different episode, a different guest, and a different topic at hand. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.